Good evening, you're listening to White Atlantic Weird, the podcast that uses tales of the supernatural, urban legends, conspiracies, and even a little weird fiction to try and answer the question, why do people believe weird things? Now, this evening, it's a wintry night in the cabin. Bear trees are outside, a strong wind is stirring, I've got the fire built up, and I guess that means it's time for a spooky seasonal short story. I am working on some longer episodes and some scripted ones in particular. Those always take me a little while to get going. Uh, I won't be too coy about it either. I'll let you know a little bit about what I am working on. I'm doing one episode about the so-called missing 411 phenomena, so that will be an upcoming American-themed episode. I do enjoy uh, many stories that take place in the American wilderness, of course, down down to my time that I did spend there. I am also working on an episode a little bit closer to home, and that's about the famous uh, Rendlesham Forest um, incident. Uh, Rendlesham Forest being, of course, one of the most famous British UFO cases. Uh, Folks often refer to it as the the British Roswell for various reasons. I do often try and stay away from uh, paranormal stories that are maybe too well done, and I try not to come at them until I think I can come at them um, with my own personal take or angle on it. I did go and visit Rendlesham Forest earlier this year and I'll, I'm going to make another trip there and I'm going to try and record as much of the evidence, uh, as much of the episode in situ as I can. So I think hopefully that will give uh, the episode a slightly different take on it um, from everybody else. I mean, there's loads of podcasts about Rendlesham Forest out there already, but uh, I want to go there again, walk around and bring all my notes with me and just kind of you know, see the, the paranormal take on it and the sceptical take on it um, in view of the actual geography of the forest itself because a lot of the evidence either way seems to be going towards or it seems to be tied up with geography and from where you can see certain things and um, from where particular lights in the sky might have looked mysterious or may have had explanations. So I'm looking forward to that but those two are pretty big projects involving lots of research and lots of writing. So meanwhile, I want to avoid having such long gaps between episodes as I've had recently. Now, real life has got in the way, but I do intend to um, have maybe shorter or simpler episodes once in a while, certainly ones that are just as interesting but simpler for me to produce. So with that in mind, what I've got for tonight is a short story. It's a favorite of mine. In fact, when I first got interested in podcasting in about 2015, this doing a recording of this very story was one of the first ideas I had. I never actually got around to it. Um, It is a story called The Seed from the Sepulchre by a writer named Clark Ashton Smith. Now, just so you know, tonight I'm supping on nothing stronger than a a fine green tea, um, which always, of course, makes me think of the short story Green Tea by the Irish writer of the fantastic Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, um, another famous favorite writer of mine so if you hear any sipping going on in the background that's all that is if you hear any crackling going on in the background well that's just the logs on the fire here in the cabin now what do we know about Clark Ashton Smith if you've not heard of him he's one of three writers sometimes referred to as the sort of holy trinity of pulp writers from back in the 1920s and 30s the other two of course being H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, the guy who created Conan the Barbarian. Now, Clark Ashton Smith is definitely the least known of these guys. Um, If he's remembered at all, he's remembered mostly because of his correspondence, his vast correspondence, it must be said, particularly with Lovecraft. Um, It's often stated that Lovecraft Lovecraft was a recluse. 
which is sort of true for some of his life, but he certainly had a lot of friends um, which he kept in touch with via letters. In fact, most of his close friendships, certainly in the literary world anyway, uh, seemed to have been through post and letters. And he, he corresponded um, at length and frequently for many years with Clark Ashton Smith. So Smith was born in 1893. He died in 1961. He spent most of his life in a small town in California. And he shared some, uh, in, in terms of his writing style, he shared some attributes with his more well-known um, colleagues. But he didn't quite have the, the grand cosmic vision of Lovecraft nor did he have quite the, the kind of brutal Darwinist obsession of Robert E. Howard. And he never really produced any ideas or characters that kind of have transcended his own writing and gone into the pop culture consciousness quite the way, you know, Cthulhu or Conan has. Um, he's got a lot of really interesting writing and he's worth, his work is worth going through and discovering. But there's no, you know, movie or car comic or uh, version of his stories that really um, broke through and provides you with kind of an entry into that. He did swap a lot of ideas with the other two and with other writers besides, um, all of whom were mem members of what is sometimes called the Lovecraft Circle. Uh, and part of that involved uh, Lovecraft and Smith using each other's characters or ideas in order to make their worlds feel more real. So I always wonder what it must have been like reading these in the 1930s when you couldn't just Google something to find out what was real because what they would do is they would, especially Lovecraft, they would um, have a character talking about maybe some occult history and they would, in one single sentence, they would drop in actual historical books or characters and then they would drop in some fictional um tomes or historical characters as well and then they would drop in the names of some ancient gods that they had created so as a reader you wouldn't really necessarily be able to tell the difference as to what was real and what was invented unless you happened to be a scholar of these sorts of things and then what Lovecraft and Smith would do is they would write letters to one another talking about some of their ideas for their historical characters or their ancient gods and they would start to use each other's work so you would have you know, famous Lovecraft deities like Cthulhu or Nyarlathotep showing up in Smith's stories as well. And I guess if you were a reader back in the days of the pulp magazines, uh, you would come across these ideas. You know, somebody might mention the famous Necronomicon of Abdul Alazred, and then you would say, oh, I saw that in another story, and you wouldn't really be certain as to whether it was a real thing or not. So I always thought that must have been quite interesting. Really, what these guys were doing was creating an early version of a sort of a shared universe, something which is all the rage now with all of the Marvel movies and that sort of thing. So, what of tonight's story, uh, The Seed from the Sepulchre? Well, I don't know how typical it is of Smith's work in general, because it doesn't have um, any of those gods and it doesn't have any of that sort of... He, had, he, was, uh, he was very interested in ancient history and in Orientalist writing. As a young man, he was obsessed with the Arabian Nights and with Vathek, which was a, a sort of a pastiche of the Arabian Nights from the Gothic fiction days. Uh, but this is different. This is of interest to me because it takes place in a steamy tropical jungle and it's sort of a piece of work from a late period of that sort of Victorian era um, tropical adventure fiction, which I like so much. I really enjoy, I think that for me, that the high period of 
adventure fiction was the mid to late Victorian period, especially with you had people like H.R. Haggard writing King Solomon's Mines and she and those classic adventure stories. And then around the turn of the 20th century, you have The Lost World by Conan Doyle in 1912. And I really love that stuff. And then by the 1920s and 30s, you get to this weird period where the sort of colonial mindset is still there, but it's coming to an end whether or not people know it. So right up until the 30s and 40s, you have this, you have stories set in the, the great colonial empires of the British powers where, you know, these colonial people are living this lifestyle which to them has been in place for several hundred years um, and it's about to come to an end but they don't necessarily know it. So they're telling these stories that are by now quite old-fashioned um, and living in this world which is about to come to an end uh, unbeknownst to them. So I find that really, really interesting as people writing these old-fashioned adventure stories as late as the 1930s or 40s and this particular story uh, dates to 1933. There's some other elements to it that make it really really interesting. It's a an example of a type of body horror which obviously now we associate with the movies of John Carpenter like The Thing and stuff like that. It's really cool to find um, a really really effective example of it, a really chilling example of it from back in the day. Also it's a, a type of a subgenre that I really like about sort of uh, carnivorous vegetation so man-eating plants and again by the 1930s Smith was probably drawing from older colonial legends like the legend of the man-eating tree of Madagascar which was a sort of a newspaper hoax from the mid uh, 19th century it's also possible that he would have read stories like the flowering of the strange orchid and um, by the incomparable H.G. Wells which I think dates to um, about the turn of the 20th century. There's other stories that this reminds me of, for example, William Hope Hodgson, who is the writer who created um, Karnaki the Ghost Finder, one of the earlier um, occult detectives, well, around about 1910, so there are some older examples, but he was certainly an important um, seminal one. Well, Hodgson wrote a story called The Voice in the Night about um, a type of fungus that can take over human bodies. It's very, very disturbing. It's a real serious shot of body horror. If you've ever seen a weird 1960s kind of groovy Japanese film about a group of people on a yacht who wash up on an island and um, find themselves being taken over by a, a giant fungus and a race of giant fungus people called Matango, that's a, a, a deeply weird um, adaptation of the William Hope Hodgson story. So there, there are echoes of that in this and uh, in tonight's Smith story. Also, of course, later in the 20th century, you had the classic Triffids from Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham in 1951, probably the premier example of uh, malevolent vegetation, shall we say. Uh, so much so that uh, any malevolent plant uh, sometimes goes by the name Triffid nowadays. Uh, again, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with any of those, Hopefully you have seen or heard some songs from the musical Little Shop of Horrors with uh, Audrey too. Probably nowadays maybe the most famous cannibalistic or human-eating plant. But uh, and, yeah, basically I recommend any of those stories or movies if you're interested in this sort of thing. But uh, The Seed from the Sepulchre is not nearly as well known as any of those and uh, Clark Ashton Smith probably isn't as well known as most of those uh, writers either. So. I'm very pleased to present this story tonight, which I feel is not as well known as many of the other types. So uh, if you were going to join me in a beverage, take a moment to get one and make yourself comfortable and we'll get on with it.
The Seed from the Sepulchre by Clark Ashton Smith. Yes, I found the place, said Falmer. It's a queer sort of place, pretty much as the legends describe it. He spat quickly into the fire, as if the act of speech had been physically distasteful to him. Half averting his face from the scrutiny of Thone, stared with morose and sombre eyes into the jungle-matted Venezuelan darkness. Thone, still weak and dizzy from the fever that had incapacitated him for continuing their journey to its end, was curiously puzzled. Falmer, he thought, had undergone an inexplicable change during the three days of his absence, a change that was too elusive in some of its phases to be fully defined or delimited. Other phases, however, were all too obvious. Falmer, even during extreme hardship or illness, had heretofore been unquenchingly loquacious and cheerful. Now he seemed sullen, uncommunicative, as if preoccupied with far-off things or disagreeable import. His bluff face had grown hollow, even pointed, and his eyes had narrowed to secretive slits. Thone was troubled by these changes, though he tried to dismiss his impressions as mere distempered fancies due to the influence of the ebbing fever. But can't you tell me what the place was like? he persisted. There isn't much to tell, said Falmer in a queer grumbling tone. Just a few crumbling walls and falling pillars. But didn't you find the burial pit of the Indian legend, where the gold was supposed to be? I found it, but there was no treasure. Falmer's voice had taken on a forbidding surliness, and Thone decided to refrain from further questioning. I guess, he commented lightly, that we had better stick to orchid hunting. Treasure trove doesn't seem to be in our line. By the way, did you see any unusual flowers or plants during the trip? Hell no, Falmer snapped. His face had gone suddenly ashen in the firelight, and his eyes had assumed a set glare that might have meant either fear or anger. Shut up, can't you? I don't want to talk. I've had a headache all day, some damned Venezuelan fever coming on, I suppose. We'd better head for the Orinoco tomorrow. I've had all I want of this trip. James Falmer and Roderick Thone, professional orchid hunters with two Indian guides, had been following an obscure tributary of the upper Orinoco. The country was rich in rare flowers, and beyond its floral wealth, they had been drawn by vague but persistent rumours among the local tribes concerning the existence of a ruined city somewhere on this tributary. A city that contained a burial pit in which vast treasures of gold, silver and jewels had been interred together with the dead of some nameless people. The two men had thought it worthwhile to investigate these rumours. Thone had fallen sick while they were still a full day's journey from the site of the ruins, and Falmer had gone on in a canoe with one of the Indians, leaving the other to attend to Thone. He had returned at nightfall of the third day following his departure. Thone decided after a while, as he lay staring at his companion, that the latter's taciturnity and moroseness were perhaps due to disappointment over his failure to find the treasure. It must have been that, together with some tropical infection working in the man's blood. However, he admitted doubtfully to himself, it was not like Falmer to be disappointed or downcast under such circumstances. Falmer did not speak again, but sat glaring before him, as if he saw something invisible to others, 
beyond the labyrinth of fire-touched boughs and lianas in which the whispering, stealthy darkness crouched. Somehow there was a shadowy fear in his aspect. Thone continued to watch him and saw that the Indians, impassive and cryptic, were also watching him, as if with some obscure expectancy. The riddle was too much for Thone, and he gave it up after a while, lapsing into restless, fever-turbulent slumber from which he awakened at intervals to see the set face of Falmer, dimmer and more distorted each time with the slowly dying fire and the invading shadows. Thone felt stronger in the morning, his brain was clear, his pulse tranquil once more, and he saw with mounting concern the indisposition of Falmer, who seemed to rouse and exert himself with great difficulty, speaking hardly a word and moving with singular stiffness and sluggishness. He appeared to have forgotten his announced project of returning toward the Orinoco, and Thone took entire charge of the preparations for departure. His companion's condition puzzled him more and more. Apparently there was no fever, and the symptoms were wholly ambiguous. However, on general principles, he administered a stiff dose of quinine to Falmer before they started. The paling saffron of sultry dawn sifted upon them through the jungle tops as they loaded their belongings into the dugouts and pushed off down the slow current. Thone sat near the bow of one of the boats, with Falmer in the rear, and a large bundle of orchid roots and part of their equipment filling the middle. The two Indians occupied the other boat, together with the rest of the supplies. It was a monotonous journey. The river wound like a sluggish olive snake between dark interminable walls of forest, from which the goblin faces of orchids leered. There were no sounds other than the splash of paddles, the furious chattering of monkeys, and petulant cries of fiery-coloured birds. The sun rose above the jungle and poured down a tide of torrid brilliance. Thone rode steadily, looking back over his shoulder at times to address Falmer with some casual remark or friendly question. The latter, with dazed eyes and features queerly pale and pinched in the sunlight, sat dully erect and made no effort to use his paddle. He offered no reply to the queries of Thone, but shook his head at intervals with a sort of shuddering motion that was plainly involuntary. After a while, he began to moan thickly, as if in pain or delirium. They went on in this manner for hours. The heat grew more oppressive between the stifling walls of jungle. Thone became aware of a shriller cadence in the moans of his companion. Looking back, he saw that Falmer had removed his sun helmet, seemingly oblivious of the murderous heat, and was clawing at the crown of his head with frantic fingers. Convulsions shook his entire body. The dugout began to rock dangerously as he tossed to and fro in a paroxysm of manifest agony. His voice mounted to a high, unhuman shrieking. Thone made a quick decision. There was a break in the lining palisade of sombre forest, and he headed the boat for shore immediately. The Indians followed, whispering between themselves and eyeing the sick man with glances of apprehensive awe and terror that puzzled Thone tremendously. He felt that there was some devilish mystery about the whole affair, and he could not imagine what was wrong with Falmer. All the known manifestations of malignant tropical diseases rose before him like a rout of hideous phantasms, but among them he could not recognise the thing that had assailed his companion.
Having gotten Falmer ashore on a semicircle of Liana Lattice Beach without the aid of the Indians, who seemed unwilling to approach the sick man, Thone administered a heavy hypodermic injection of morphine from his medicine chest. This appeared to ease Falmer's suffering, and the convulsion ceased. Thone, taking advantage of their remission, proceeded to examine the crown of Falmer's head. He was startled to find, amid the thick, dishevelled hair, a hard and pointed lump which resembled the tip of a beginning horn, rising under the still unbroken skin. As if endowed with erectile and resistless life, it seemed to grow beneath his fingers. At the same time, abruptly and mysteriously, Falmer opened his eyes and appeared to regain full consciousness. For a few minutes, he was more his normal self than at any time since his return from the ruins. He began to talk, as if anxious to relieve his mind of some oppressing burden. His voice was peculiarly thick and toneless, but Thone was able to follow his mutterings and piece them together. The pit, the pit, said Falmer, the infernal thing that was in the pit, in the deep sepulchre. I wouldn't go back there for the treasure of a dozen Eldorados. I didn't tell you much about those ruins, Thone. Somehow it was hard, impossibly hard, to talk. I guess the Indian knew there was something wrong with the ruins. He led me to the place, but he wouldn't tell me anything about it, and he waited by the riverside while I searched for the treasure. Great grey walls there were, older than the jungle, old as death and time. They must have been quarried and reared by people from some lost planet. They loomed and leaned at mad, unnatural angles, threatening to crush the trees about them. And there were columns too, thick, swollen columns of unholy form, whose abominable carvings the jungle had not wholly screened from view. There was no trouble finding that accursed burial pit. The pavement above had broken through quite recently, I think. A big tree had pried with its boa-like roots between the flagstones that were buried beneath centuries of mould. One of the flags had been tilted back on the pavement, and another had fallen into the pit. There was a large hole whose bottom I could see dimly in the forest strangled to light. Something glimmered palely at the bottom, but I could not be sure what it was. I had taken along a coil of rope, as you remember. I tied one end of it to a main root of the tree, dropped the other through the opening, and went down like a monkey. When I got to the bottom, I could see little at first in the gloom, except the whitish glimmering all around me at my feet. Something that was unspeakably brittle and friable crunched beneath me when I began to move. I turned on my flashlight and saw that the place was fairly littered with bones. Human skeletons lay tumbled everywhere. They must have been removed long ago. I groped around amid the bones and dust, feeling pretty much like a ghoul, but couldn't find anything of value, not even a bracelet or a finger ring or any of the skeletons. It wasn't until I thought of climbing out that I noticed the real horror. In one of the corners, the corner nearest to the opening in the roof, I looked up and saw it in the webby shadows. Ten feet above my head it hung, and I had almost touched it unknowingly when I descended the rope. It looked like a sort of white latticework at first. Then I saw that the lattice was partly formed of human bones, a complete skeleton, very tall and stalwart, like that of a warrior. 
A pale, withered thing grew out of the skull, like a set of fantastic antlers ending in myriads of long and stringy tendrils that had spread upward till they reached the roof. They must have lifted the skeleton or body along with them as they climbed. I examined the thing with my flashlight. It must have been a plant of some sort, and apparently it had started to grow in the cranium. Some of the branches had issued from the cloven crown, others through the eye holes, the mouth and the nose holes to flare upward, and the roots of the blasphemous thing had gone downward, trestling themselves on every bone. The very toes and fingers were ringed with them, and they drooped in writhing coils. Worst of all, the ones that had issued from the toe ends were rooted in a second skull which dangled just below, with fragments of the broken off root system. There was a litter of fallen bones on the floor in the corner. The sight made me feel a little weak somehow, and more than a little nauseated that abhorrent, inexplicable mingling of the human and the plant. I started to climb the rope in a feverish hurry to get out, but the thing fascinated me in its abominable fashion, and I couldn't help pausing to study it a little more when I had climbed halfway. I leaned toward it too fast, I guess, and the rope began to sway, bringing my face lightly against the leprous, antler-shaped boughs above the skull. Something broke, possibly a sort of pod on one of the branches. I found my head enveloped in a cloud of pearl-grey powder, very light, fine, and scentless. The stuff settled on my hair, it got into my nose and eyes, nearly choking and blinding me. I shook it off as well as I could, then I climbed on and pulled myself through the opening. As if the effort of coherent narration had been too heavy a strain, Falmer lapsed into disconnected mumblings. The mysterious malady, whatever it was, returned upon him, and his delirious ramblings were mixed with groans of torture. But at moments he regained a flash of coherence. My head, my head, he muttered. There must be something in my brain, something that grows and spreads. I tell you, I can feel it there. I haven't felt right at any time since I left the burial pit. My mind has been queer ever since. It must have been the spores of the ancient devil plant. The spores have taken root. The thing is splitting my skull, going down into my brain. A plant that springs out of a human cranium, as if from a flower pot. The dreadful convulsions began once more, and Falmer writhed uncomfortably in his companion's arms, shrieking with agony. Thone, sick at heart and shocked by his sufferings, abandoned all effort to restrain him and took up the hypodermic. With much difficulty, he managed to inject a triple dose, and Falmer grew quiet by degrees and lay with open glassy eyes, breathing stentoriously. Thone, for the first time, perceived an odd protrusion of his eyeballs, which seemed about to start from their sockets, making it impossible for the lids to close and lending the drawn features an expression of mad horror. It was as if something were pushing Falmer's eyes from his head. Thone, trembling with sudden weakness and terror, felt that he was involved in some unnatural web of nightmare. He could not, dared not, believe the story Farmer had told him and its implications. Assuring himself that his companion had imagined it all, had been ill throughout with the incubation of some strange fever, he stooped over and found that the horn-shaped lump on Falmer's head had now broken through the skin. With a sense of unreality, he stared at the object that his prying fingers had revealed amid the matted hair. It was unmistakably a plant bud of some sort, 
with involuted folds of pale green and bloody pink that seemed about to expand. The thing issued from above the central suture of the skull. A nausea swept upon Thone, and he recoiled from the lolling head and its baleful outgrowth, averting his gaze. His fever was returning. There was a woeful debility in all his limbs, and he heard the muttering voice of delirium through the quinine-induced ringing in his ears. His eyes blurred with a deathly and miasmal mist. He fought to subdue his illness and impotence. He must not give way to it wholly. He must go on with Falmer and the Indians and reach the nearest trading station, many days away on the Orinoco, where Falmer could receive aid. As if through sheer volition, his eyes cleared, and he felt a resurgence of strength. He looked around for the guides and saw, with a start of uncomprehending surprise, that they had vanished. Peering further, he observed that one of the boats, the dugout used by the Indians, had also disappeared. It was plain that he and Falmer had been deserted. Perhaps the Indians had known what was wrong with the sick man and had been afraid. At any rate, they were gone, and they had taken much of the camp equipment and most of the provisions with them. Thone turned once more to the supine body of Falmer, conquering his repugnance with effort. Resolutely, he drew out his clasp knife, and, stooping over the stricken man, he excised the protruding bud, cutting as close to the scalp as he could with safety. The thing was unnaturally tough and rubbery. It exuded a thin, sanguineous fluid, and he shuddered when he saw its internal structure, full of nerve-like filaments, with a core that suggested cartilage. He flung it aside, quickly, on the river sand. Then, lifting Falmer in his arms, he lurched and staggered towards the remaining boat. He fell more than once, and lay half-swooning across the inert body. Alternately carrying and dragging his burden, he reached the boat at last. With the remainder of his failing strength, he contrived to prop Falmer in the stern against the pile of equipment. His fear was mounting apace. After much delay with tedious, half-delirious exertions, he pushed off from the shore till the fever mastered him wholly and the oar slipped from oblivious fingers. He awoke in the yellow glare of dawn, with his brain and his senses comparatively clear. His illness had left a great languor, but his first thought was of Falmer. He twisted about, nearly falling overboard in his debility, and sat facing his companion. Falmer still reclined, half sitting, half lying, against the pile of blankets and other impedimenta. His knees were drawn up, his hands clasping them as if in titanic rigour. His features had grown as stark and ghastly as those of a dead man, and his whole aspect was one of mortal rigidity. It was this, however, that caused Thone to gasp with unbelieving horror. During the interim of Thone's delirium and his lapse into slumber, the monstrous plant bud, merely stimulated, it would seem, by the act of excision, had grown again with preternatural rapidity from Falmer's head. A loathsome, pale green stem was mounting thickly and had started to branch like antlers after attaining a height of six or seven inches. More dreadful than this, if possible, similar growths had issued from the eyes, and their stems, climbing vertically across the forehead, 
had entirely displaced the eyeballs. Already they were branching like the thing from the crown. The antlers were all tipped with pale vermilion. They appeared to quiver with repulsive animations, nodding rhythmically in the warm, windless air. From the mouth another stem protruded, curling upward like a long and whitish tongue. It had not yet begun to bifurcate. Cone closed his eyes to shut away the shocking vision. Behind his lids, in a yellow dazzle of light, he still saw the cadaverous features, the climbing stems that quivered against the dawn like ghastly hydras of tomb-etoliated green. They seemed to be waving towards him, growing and lengthening as they waved. He opened his eyes again and fancied, with a start of new terror, that the antlers were actually taller than they had been a few moments previous. After that, he sat watching them in a sort of baleful hypnosis. The illusion of the plant's visible growth and freer movement, if it were illusion, increased upon him. Falmer, however, did not stir, and his parchment face appeared to shrivel and fall in, as if the roots of the growth were draining his blood, were devouring his very flesh in their insatiable and ghoulish hunger. Thone wrenched his eyes away and stared at the river shore. The stream had widened and the current had grown more sluggish. He sought to recognise their location, looking vainly for some familiar landmark in the monotonous, dull green cliffs of jungle that lined the margin. He felt hopelessly lost and alienated. He seemed to be drifting on an unknown tide of madness and nightmare, accompanied by something more frightful than corruption itself. His mind began to wander with an odd inconsequence, coming back always in a sort of closed circle to the thing that was devouring Falmer. With a flash of scientific curiosity, he found himself wondering to what genus it belonged. It was neither fungus nor pitcher plant nor anything that he had ever encountered or heard of in his explorations. It must have come, as Falmer had suggested, from an alien world. It was nothing that the earth could conceivably have nourished. He felt, with a comforting assurance, that Falmer was dead. That, at least, was a mercy. But even as he shaped the thought, he heard a low, guttural moaning, and, peering at Falmer in a horrible startlement, saw that his limbs and body were twitching slightly. The twitching increased and took on a rhythmic regularity, though at no time did it resemble the agonised and violent convulsions of the previous day. It was plainly automatic, like a sort of galvanism, and Thone saw that it was timed with the languorous and loathsome swaying of the plant. The effect on the watcher was insidiously mesmeric and somnolent, and once he caught himself beating the detestable rhythm with his foot. He tried to pull himself together, groping desperately for something to which his sanity could cling. Ineluctably, his illness returned, fever, nausea and revulsion worse than the loathliness of death. But before he yielded to it utterly, he drew his loaded revolver from the holster and fired six times into Falmer's quivering body. He knew that he had not missed, but after the final bullet, Falmer still moaned and twitched in unison with the evil swaying of the plant, and Thone, sliding into delirium, heard still the ceaseless, automatic moaning. There was no time in the world of seething unreality and shoreless oblivion through which he drifted. When he came to himself again, he could not know if hours or weeks had elapsed, but he knew at once that the boat was no longer moving, and lifted himself dizzily, he saw that it had floated into shallow water and mud, 
and was nosing the beach of a tiny, jungle-tofted isle in mid-river. The putrid odour of slime was about him like a stagnant pool, and he heard a strident humming of insects. It was either late morning or early afternoon, for the sun was high in the still heavens. Lianas were drooping above him from the island trees like uncoiled serpents, and epiphytic orchids, marked with ophidian mottlings, leaned towards him grotesquely from lowered boughs. Immense butterflies went past on sumptuously spotted wings. He sat up, feeling very giddy and light-headed, and faced again the horror that accompanied him. The thing had grown incredibly. The three antlered stems, mounting above Falmer's head, had become gigantic and had put out masses of ropey feelers that tossed uneasily in the air, as if searching for support or new provender. In the topmost antlers, a prodigious blossom had opened, a sort of fleshy disc, broad as a man's face and white as leprosy. Falmer's features had shrunken till the outlines of every bone were visible as if beneath tightened paper. He was a mere death's head in a mask of human skin, and beneath his clothing, the body was little more than a skeleton. He was quite still now, except for the communicated quivering of the stems. The atrocious plant had sucked him dry, had eaten his vitals and his flesh. Thon wanted to hurl himself forward in a mad impulse to grapple with the growth, but a strange paralysis held him back. The plant was like a living and sentient thing, a thing that watched him, that dominated him with its unclean but superior will. And the huge blossom, as he stared, took on the dim, unnatural semblance of a face. It was somehow like the face of Falmer, but the lineaments were twisted all awry and were mingled with those of something wholly devilish and non-human. Thone could not move, he could not take his eyes from the blasphemous abnormality. By some miracle his fever had left him, and it did not return. Instead, there came an eternity of frozen fright and madness in which he sat facing the mesmeric plant. It towered before him from the dry, dead shell that had been Falmer, its swollen, glutted stems and branches swaying gently, its huge flower leering perpetually upon him with its impious travesty of a human face. He thought that he heard a low, singing sound, ineffably sweet, but whether it emanated from the plant or was a mere hallucination of his overwrought senses, he could not know. The sluggish hours went by, and a grueling sun poured down its beams like molten lead from some titanic vessel of torture. His head swam with weakness and the fever-laden heat, but he could not relax the rigour of his posture. There was no change in the nodding monstrosity, which seemed to have attained its full growth above the head of its victim. But after a long interim, Thone's eyes were drawn to the shrunken hands of Falmer, which still clasped the drawn-up knees in a spasmodic clutch. Through the ends of the fingers, tiny white rootlets had broken and were writhing slowly in the air, groping, it seemed, for a new source of nourishment. Then, from the neck and chin, other tips were breaking, and over the whole body the clothing stirred in a curious manner, as if with the crawling and lifting of hidden lizards. At the same time, the singing grew louder, sweeter, more imperious, and the swaying of the great plant assumed an indescribably seductive tempo. It was like the allurement of voluptuous sirens, the deadly languor of dancing cobras. Thone felt an irresistible compulsion, 
a summons was being laid upon him, and his drugged mind and body must obey it. The very fingers of Falmer, twisting viperishly, seemed beckoning to him. Suddenly he was on his hands and knees in the bottom of the boat, inch by inch, with terror and fascination contending in his brain. He crept forward, dragging himself over the disregarded bundle of orchid plants, inch by inch, foot by foot, till his head was against the withered hands of Falmer, from which hung and floated the questing roots. Some cataleptic spell had made him helpless. He felt the rootless as they moved like delving fingers through his hair and over his face and neck, and started to strike in with agonizing, needle-sharp tips. He could not stir, he could not even close his lids. In a frozen stare, he saw the gold and carmine flash of a hovering butterfly as the roots began to pierce his pupils. Deeper and deeper went the greedy roots, while new filaments grew out to enmesh him like a witch's net. For a while, it seemed that the dead and the living writhed together in leashed convulsions. At last, Thone hung supine amid the lethal, ever-growing web, bloated and colossal. The plant lived on, and in its upper branches, through the still, stifling afternoon, a second flower began to unfold. That was The Seed from the Sepulchre by Clark Ashton Smith. And folks, it is horrible. I might even have forgotten exactly quite how horrible it really is. A few things I noticed upon this uh, rereading. I did mention at the start that um, uh, this story doesn't have a whole lot of the sort of cosmic horror that links um, Smith to Lovecraft and the other writers of that group. There is a tiny little, I think, a hint of it in this story. We don't get too many details about the origin of the plant or the, the, the strange tomb or lost city in which it's found, but some of the language there that, the, that uh, Smith uses to describe it is a little bit Lovecraftian. He mentions that there are unnatural angles of the architecture, which is a big, big red flag for me that implies that he's taking some ideas from Lovecraft there because a lot of Lovecraft's uh, stories and creatures inhabit this impossibly ancient world. A lot of his ideas involve characters discovering you know really really scary or terrible things that um are incredibly ancient and predate humanity that's a big part of his cosmic horror so there's a touch of that here we don't really find out what this lost city is whether it was some ancient race or perhaps there's a tiny touch of the ancient aliens in there as well uh, folks on the internet have made a pretty good case to show that really uh, lovecraft's writing um, is, a, is an important precedent for the whole ancient astronauts theory. So even before Von Daniken, when his book came out in, um, I think, 68 was Chariots of the Gods, and now obviously we have the really, really silly Ancient Aliens TV show, which is um, unfortunately a very big deal and um, informs a lot of people's ideas about ancient history now, uh, for better or for worse. Really, a lot of that can be laid at the foot of these writers going back to the 1920s. Uh, there is some stuff that predates it, and I might do uh, an episode on the history of the ancient astronauts theory, uh, and really it goes right back to the 19th century and to inevitably theosophy and stuff like that. 
uh, some of which we've touched on in old episodes of my previous podcast, Strange Ireland, with um, with the story of Desmond Leslie, who who wrote the early Flying Saucer books with um, George Adamski. Uh, he took a lot of information from Theosophy, and you had these ideas of races that predated man, and, and sometimes they're written about as being sort of spiritual beings, but sometimes it's quite clear that they're talking about um, literal aliens from other planets. Anyway, uh, there's just a smidgen of that in this short story by Clark Ashton Smith. Again, it's implied he doesn't quite say uh, who built this city, whether it was just an ancient race of people um, or something else, but he does mention that it's impossibly ancient, it's older than the jungle, and again, you have this um, aspect of this slightly crazy or impossible seeming architecture which is a big facet of certainly of Lovecraft's work when he talks about in in Call of Cthulhu when he talks about the uh, the lost city of Rillet if I'm saying that correctly he likes to he talks a lot at length about how the geography seems to be utterly impossible such is the uh, non-human nature of the beings that we're dealing with Anyway, that's all I have to say about the short story for this episode. So you've been listening to Wide Atlantic Weird. If you like what you hear and you'd like to get in touch, the best way to do so is still on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland. Uh, things we're interested to hear about. If anything weird has ever happened to you, we'd love to know about it. We might even talk about it on the show if you're interested. If you have a favorite creepy or horrible short story that you'd like us to read, uh, as long as it's old and out of copyright, we're certainly happy to do so. Until then, stay in touch and thanks for listening.